Well, good morning, Calvary. I commend you for getting out of that warm, probably comfortable bed this morning, even though it was cold and wet outside and you still came. So may you get a double blessing for that today. Um, <clears throat> I've been, I'm, I'm on the back end of a cold this week. It thankfully wasn't as bad as it could have been, but I'll try not to cough into the mic at just the wrong moment uh, this morning, <clears throat> but I apologize in advance. Uh, we're in our second week of our new sermon series going through Genesis and taking some of the highlights and Maybe today you might say some of the lowlights of the, the, the book of Genesis, but they're, they're, they're meant to teach us about our origins. In fact, we're calling it uh, our origin story, the origin of humanity, so we can see the why, the how, the purpose of humanity as, as created by God. And, and so we started last week with the origin story of creation, of how all of the universe came to be and, and humans as well. In fact, the definition of Genesis in and of itself is the origin or mode of formation of something. And so I think God has given us a very appropriately titled book in the book of Genesis to say, hey, if you want to know where this all came from, how this all started, go back to Genesis and learn about the origins of it all. <clears throat> we looked at what does it mean to, to be human and, and what does that look like? We saw last week that to be human is to be created by God in his image and that he gives us our identity, which includes our sexuality, our calling, and our capacity to co-create in this world with him. One of the neat distinctions between Genesis and other creation stories out there is that God is not this capricious God who is just from a distant and, and looking for humanity to enslave. God is a loving father who comes alongside, who asks us as humanity to work with him in the world, to develop the world in civilization, and uh, as it said, to rule the world, to subdue it, fill the earth and to co-create with him, to have the capacity to create in this world. It's a beautiful picture of a creator God. And yet it's clear by our own experience, by everything we know about reality around us, it's clear that our humanity has been degraded significantly. Uh, we are deceitful people. We are proud. We are lustful. We oppress. And as a result of these things, confusion reigns in our culture, in our societies, in every city and nation of the world about what is the nature and purpose of humanity. We saw last week as well that what's interesting about this is a universal human condition is everybody's asking the same questions. And so every religion or school of philosophy or social science tries to give comprehensive answers to these four fundamental questions. Origin of the universe, right? Where did it all come from? Origin of humanity, where did we come from and who are we? What has gone wrong and what is the solution? These are four questions that everybody seeks to answer. And we looked a little bit of questions one and two today. We'll pick up on, on two and get into number three this week about what has gone wrong. Because God's word not only has definitive answers to these questions, these profound questions, I believe they have the best answers that have stood the test of time and that as you examine them, you may agree as well, it's, it's the right answers for us in, in our questions of humanity. Last week, we looked for clues to the first two questions, the origin of the universe, the origin of humanity, in that creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. We saw that God created, and he created a remarkably amazing universe. Uh, and yet, in the midst of creation, we saw that God gave humanity a special place in that creation, right? God used his voice to create light and animals and plants and seas and stars. We even saw how scientifically that could be, that, that God used the resonance of his voice to create chemical reactions that made organic matter possible in the universe. And yet, when it comes to humanity, 
When it comes to man and woman, God doesn't use his voice, he uses his hands. He uses his hands, he gets up close and personal to shape Adam from the dust. And then he takes a rib from Adam's side to shape Eve and to bring them together. And he breathes the breath of life into them. What a beautiful picture of a God who comes near and who has a special relationship with his creation. It's where we get the idea of the sanctity of human life. Uh, we believe all life in all, universe, in all the universe, in all creation is important, it's good, but humanity has a special place as made in the image of God. Uh, speaking of sanctity of human life, for the next month or so here at Calvary, we're doing a baby bottle campaign. You might have seen it on your way in, or if not, you could see it on your way out. We, we have these cute little baby bottles where you can collect change in order to help the crisis pregnancy centers here uh, that help women with unexpected pregnancies. So we believe in, in the sanctity of life, um, the, the whole spectrum of it, because God has made humans in the image of God. But into this beautiful paradise, into this beautiful story of Genesis 1 and 2, temptation enters. And so today we're going to address the third question of what has gone wrong. We're going we're to look at some bad news, but it's going to explain a lot, I think, of what we experience in our life and in our world. And it's going to end in some good news, because for the believer, the best is always yet to come. So let's read together from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read together verses 1 through 13. So I'd like to invite you to stand, and you'll see the scripture on the screen. As I read this for us, uh, we'll meditate and listen to the word of God. Uh, later on, I'll address other verses in chapter 3 and a little bit in chapter 4, but this will be the core context for today. Now it says that now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Again, we're not reading a lot of good news here. We're reading some pretty tough, kind of a bummer situation here because we know that this effects uh, of sin, uh, you know, we, we continue to feel and live in today. But before we examine this closely, I want to back up a little bit to the end of chapter two because there's a couple of key things in the end of chapter two that helps set up chapter three. Last week, I talked a little bit about identity and how God gives us our sexual identity when he creates male and female in the image of God. He makes both male and female in the image of God. And let me just say a little bit more about that. 
Uh, because I think it's so important in our day and, and all these culture wars about gender identity that we understand what it is that God may be telling us here in the creation story. Like I mentioned last week, we see two complementary genders. They're meant to work together, to, to help each other, to be a complement to each other, to be one, as it says in Genesis 2, 21 to 24. But yet these two complementary genders in today's day and age, when we have 7 billion people on the planet, with seven billion different personalities or uniquenesses, uh, what does that look like? And, and why is there so much confusion about that in our world today? I think it's fascinating that we've discovered through science and through, through experience that every human being has a unique fingerprint, right? If you've ever been fingerprinted by the FBI, don't raise your hand, it's okay. You can remain anonymous. You know, they do that because every fingerprint is unique. But did you know that we also have a unique voice print? Everybody has a unique voice print. And we also have unique eye prints. Uh, you've seen those you know, high-tech shows, right, where the radar scans of the eye before you can open a door. So in other words, we, I may even think that we have unique soul prints. I don't know. I can't prove that, right? But the point is that God has created each one of us in a very unique and special way. And that speaks to the beauty of God's creation, to the wonder of God's creation, like it says in Scripture, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it speaks to the diversity within God's creation. And that's the point I'd like to make this morning. Uh, you look at the diversity of the, the varieties of birds and fish. I recently read that there, anybody know what a walking stick is? Not the kind you find in the woods, but the insect, right? There are, there are over a thousand species of walking sticks. Now, I'm just wanting, I just wanna know why, right? What is the purpose of there being a thousand different species of walking stick insects? I think it's just the evidence that God loves variety and he loves an abundance of variety. So what does that have to do with gender? I think it's important for us to recognize that we don't limit to the stereotype of what it means to be a man or a woman. In other words, there could be a much variety of expression within each gender. Take a look at this image. I don't know if anybody can recognize this one. It may be not from your generation, but he's known as what? The Marlboro Man. Yeah, uh, he is, uh, he's an image, an icon of, of kind of the manly look. He reminds me a little bit of my grandpa, actually. Uh, but look how he sits on that horse. His hat's just right. He's got this great tough guy looking stare. You know, he probably shoots a gun really well and he rides well, I'm sure he hunts and fishes. You know, and, and you know, this, this image of a man who probably has a six pack, right? Not in the fridge, but right here. You know, there's this whole image of what a man should be, right? And our advertising world pushes that on us in all sorts of different ways. And yet we know when you think about it that, that we shouldn't limit what the definition of a man is to something as, as, I, as simplistic as the Marlboro Man. And yet in our world, we tend to do that kind of thing. Uh, as I was growing up, going through college, um, I had a good father, but he was not present in my life. So I was looking for father figures and, and reading men's, book and men's books about ministry and what God has called us to be. One of the first books I read was by a Navy SEAL. So I already admired him. I'm like, wow, awesome guy. You know, and he writes a book called Tender Warrior. And his point was that, you know, we have this kind of tough guy attitude about what it means to be men, but we need to remember that God has also called us to be tender, Right? to be sensitive, to respond softly to our wife and kids and not just yell at them like military sergeants might do. Right? And so it's interesting right, that I began to realize, okay, there's stereotypes out there. And, and in the church, we need to correct those stereotypes and recognize that there's a wide variety of what it means to be a man. And we need to recapture some of that. So I personally can relate to that because I didn't grow up 
hunting or fishing or riding horses or shooting guns. I, I wish I would have learned to ride horses. I love horses. I didn't grow up playing football, so I, you know, I can't tackle. Uh, I, I didn't ever learn how to down a shot of whiskey, all right? Uh, I have to admit, I've tried, and all I could do is take a little tiny sip at a time because it just overwhelms me, right? So these kind of things often make me feel less manly, if you would, compared to the stereotypical man. And I've known good men in my life with have more sensitive feelings or enjoy different pastimes. But all I know is that we are still 100% in the male category. So you see what I'm saying? There's, there's a stereotype that limits it. And yet there's a lot of expression and diversity within what it means to be a man. Same within what it means to be a woman, right? Don't limit the stereotype to the stereotype what it means to be a woman. Here's a picture from a 1950s ad, right, of, of the woman, you know, perfectly dressed, the child's perfectly dressed. I'm sure there's dinner in the oven somewhere and she's lifting the man sitting on the couch. That's also a stereotype, right? The man that just comes home and just sits there uh, and, and, and cleaning house and doing everything perfectly, right? That's obviously a stereotype that we can laugh at. And yet, yet if we're not careful, we let that limit what it means to be a man or a woman, and then people get confused if they don't fit those stereotypes. Um, an interesting uh, thing between my wife and I is that she grew up with her dad who was a pastor, and on his spare time, he liked to do carpentry and woodwork. So Christy learned how to handle tools, how to fix things, how to assemble things. And it took a while, in fact, it took about 25 years of marriage, before I could finally uh, accept and admit that she fixes things better than I do, all right? <laughs> So if you need something fixed, you know, something assembled, you know, talk to Christy first because she'll get it done faster than I can. On a more serious note, um, my sister, my sister is about two years older than I. Uh, she and her, her husband at the time, you know, tried to get pregnant. They tried to have kids. And after, after many years of trying, they just realized that she could not get pregnant. And it ended up costing her her marriage because her husband wanted kids. And, uh, and other things happened and, and they ended up separating. But you know, that doesn't change the fact that she is a woman, that she's 100% female. We're all made different. We have different expressions. We have things that happen in us that, 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 that we can't control, like the case of my sister not being able to get pregnant. And yet God makes it clear there are two complementary genders and there's a lot of distinction about what that can look like. And yet in the midst of that today, we see an enemy, the, the, the powers of darkness, speaking into that to pray and, and to create confusion, especially in kids and young teens, and confusion that would sort itself out if only fully uh, nurtured and developed with time. In fact, we know now scientifically that kids' brains don't fully get wired until maybe the early 20s. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to force these, these whiplash solutions that people are doing in our culture today to say, well, if you don't feel like a boy, then you must be a girl. And that is an evil, evil lie from the enemy out there today. So this is why it's so important that we have men and women church. Uh, Ruben here earlier doing the pastoral welcome leads our man church. Kira Corona leads our women church. And we have this, I think, is a critical time in our culture so that we can point people back to the original intention of our good and wise creator. God made male and female. He made them with a lot of diversity within that range. But that is where we can find our identity inside those categories. And so we see that God makes male and female. It's a perfect union. It's a beautiful picture. And in verse 25 of, verse, of chapter 2, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
Don't let that be just a simple sentence that transitions to chapter three. That is a powerful sentence. It's telling us how idyllic the situation was. There was no shame. I don't know if you and I can picture that, right? Because from, from very young, we grow up with, with situations where we experience shame, we feel shame, we encounter shame. And it's a very, very powerful thing. So into this scenario, we see Genesis three, the scripture we read earlier. And as we look at verse one, let's just address the obvious first of all, right? Let's address the elephant in the room, or you might, you know, you might call it the, the serpent in the garden, right? What's going on here? We have a serpent who speaks. And of course, skeptics point to it as a lack of reality. Oh, look, a serpent is speaking. That can't be real. I would call that a lack of imagination, right? Why couldn't it have happened? There's an, actually an ancient Jewish tradition that holds that it was possible that the early creation world had a proto-language shared between humans and animals. And again, we think, oh, well, that, that's, that's just interesting fantasy. And, but, but it inspired people even like C.S. Lewis, who created the world of Narnia in his Chronicles of Narnia. He had talking beavers and talking lions, right? Where did he get that idea from? Uh, the serpent, you know, regardless of, of how he communicated, he clearly communicates something to Eve in order to cause her to take from that fruit and fall into temptation. The, the, the Jewish tradition says the serpent could have been jealous because of the position Adam and Eve had above the other animals. But regardless of what it is, we know that into this story, there's a deceiver who comes in and creates confusion in Adam and Eve about what the purpose of humanity is and who they are supposed to be. And he creates confusion first with, with an initial question, right? And that initial question is, did God really say? And if we're aware, we can recognize that this is the same question that Satan, the deceiver, still uses today, right? He's constantly calling into question the scriptures. Well, could that really have happened? Did God really say that? Do you really think that's, you know, scientifically possible or, or morally correct or whatever you might think? There's constantly the same question that the deceiver is using. Did God really say? And Jesus warns us, right? The deceiver comes into the world to steal to kill and to destroy. And we'll see some of these consequences that Adam and Eve experienced. But in verse five, the serpent doubles down. Not only does he question God, but then he says, no, in fact, he says, you will not die. Your eyes will be opened and God doesn't want you to see and to know what he does. So it brings us to our first key point from the scripture today. And that's that sin calls into question the truth and the character of God. It calls into question the truth of God and, 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 it, and it makes you look for truth in other places if you decide it's not going to be found in God's word. And it calls into question the character of God because it implies that God can't be trusted when he says, did God really say? And, and actually God has a different motive and intention. If we're not careful, these are the exact same schemes the devil uses to deceive us and to turn us away from God's ways today. It calls into question the character of God, that God can't be trusted, and we spend the rest of our existence trying to figure out who we can trust. So let me ask you, do you have trouble trusting God? Do you have trouble trusting his plans or his timing? I know sometimes that's a little difficult for us, right? Do we have trouble trusting his provision or his will and his ways or his word? It all stems from that that, that root attack of the evil one that says, question the character of God because he has something different that he's not telling you about. And sin does that. If we're not careful, it'll call us, cause us to call into question the truth and the character of God. 
And then in verses six and seven, we see what happens as a result. They, 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 they take the lie, they literally eat the lie, and they feel what? They feel shame. Number two, sin is the root cause of our shame. From the Oxford Language Dictionary, the word shame simply means a painful feeling of humiliation. How many of you have been there? I know I have. Or distress caused by consciousness of wrong. In other words, we're aware of something wrong or a foolish behavior. So the action comes first and shame comes as a result. And you know, people might argue about the Bible's definition of sin and, and if it's really true or not, but what they can't argue is that shame is real. Everybody knows shame is real. Everybody knows shame is universal. It does not have to be taught. Why? Because sin is universal and it does not have to be taught. Right? People try to deal with people's shame apart from the biblical worldview that sin produces shame, whether it's your own sin or the sin of others. And, and you're always gonna look for answers and you're not gonna find it because shame has its roots in sin, the biblical definition of sin. And this is where our world also gets it wrong. Our culture and our society is saying, well, let's examine the structures and, and there's in unjust structures in our world. And so if we just change the structure, we'll get it right. Maybe our structures need to be examined. Sure, that's always a good thing to do from time to time. But you're not gonna be able to change the structure and get it right unless you address the human heart where sin resides. Sin is in our being. The New Testament calls it, it's in the flesh, right? We all have flesh, we're flesh and blood. Therefore, sin is part of our being. And this is the biblical worldview. And it's the best explanation I've ever seen of why we know right and wrong and why we experience things like sin and shame. It's passed on to us. And in verses eight through 13, as we read here, so, so what does God do? God lovingly confronts them. And I love that picture, right? That God lovingly confronted them. We'll see a few things God did here in, in a moment. Uh, but, but even though God lovingly confronts the sin, we realize that sin has natural consequences, that they can't go away, right? God's gonna do what he's gonna do to redeem, but the consequences, the natural consequences are gonna remain. Uh, look at what it says in Genesis 3, 21 through 23. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Key point number three is that sin has natural consequences and it explains the existence of evil in the world. We're gonna look at that more next week. Why is there evil in the world? But, but note these consequences and, and note the impact, right? It impacts their walk with God. What's the first thing they do? They feel shame and they, re, they, they remove themselves. There's a distance that happens between them and God. It also impacts their relationship with each other, right? They begin the blame game, right? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and, and, and the discord between man and woman begins to, to fracture their relationship. They also, we also see an impact on nature, right? Adam is gonna now have to work a ground that is cursed and, and, and more difficult to produce the fruit of the earth. And there's also a break between humans and animals. So all this sadness comes into the world, all this de devastating separation and division and brokenness because sin has natural consequences. And yet these three unique consequences we see in verses 21 to 23 also have uh, eventual solutions, right? But here we see in these verses 21 to 23 that God judges, but then he begins the task of restoration, 
right? Note the first thing that there's a consequence for animals because where did God get the skins from to cover Adam and Eve? He had to sacrifice animals, right? Up to that point, animals didn't have to die, right? And those of you who love pets, you know how hard, you know, you know the, the depth of how that pain might feel when an animal dies. And yet God has to do that to cover their nakedness. So the animals sacrifice, that's a consequence. Uh, and, and to produce the garments of skin. Another consequence is the loss of innocence, right? They now feel shame. They now know knowledge of good and evil, and they've lost their innocence. And the third consequence is that they're banished from God's immediate presence. Now, I want you to know, though, how that is, I want you to note how that's a loving consequence, right? All of these are loving in the sense that God is clothing them and caring for them. And even though they lost their innocence, God banishes them from the garden so that what? So they couldn't take from the other fruit and live forever because then they would live forever in sin and death. And God says, I'm going to have a different plan. I'm going to restore you uh, so that you don't live forever in sin and death. And on the contrary, God wants us to live forever in freedom and in his presence. And so in Genesis 3.15, we won't have time to look at it today, but you see the, the seeds of the gospel. God puts a promise in there that says that one day all these things will be reversed. And we know that in Jesus who comes, uh, what do we know about Jesus in the New Testament? He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, like that first animal that was sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve, Jesus is, is, is crucified on the cross and he becomes our robe of righteousness, like the scripture says. That's the initial reversal of that first consequence. Uh, we also know that Jesus offers to heal our shame and he declares us just by taking the punishment for sin upon himself. He restores our innocence, uh, Jesus does. And we also know that even though Adam and Eve were banished from God's immediate presence, and right now you and I, we, we, we can get close to God, we can feel the spirit of God, we can hear the word of God, but we're not in God's immediate presence where it's tangible and we feel it and we know it and we can see eye to eye and face to face. And yet the Bible tells us that Jesus will come again and he will reunite us with God's immediate presence in the age to come. So see, the, the, the effects of sin, the, the consequences of sin are devastating and we still feel them today. But Jesus was already at work to reverse and restore and redeem. And let's look at one more thing in Genesis chapter four. Because what happens here is Adam and Eve begin to have a family and as they have sons, they begin to pass on that sin nature to their sons. And so we see that, that in the course of time, it says Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. It says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering because he did it the right way. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor because he did it the wrong way. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And listen to verse seven. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is a powerful, powerful truth here. And that is that sin is naturally passed on to the next generation. Nobody has to teach it to us. It just comes with the job of being humans. Nobody is immune to that. And even Christians, right? We, we know we battle with the flesh constantly and we have to overcome it. This warning to, to Cain is a warning to us. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Just this week, 
I, I heard the, the crushing news again of a Christian leader, one that I particularly respect and admire his teachings, who fell to sexual temptation. Sin crouched at his door and he let it, and he let it have him. But, but you know, the good news is you don't have to let it beat you. And that's our fourth and last point here this morning is that sin, sin wants to dominate you. Sin wants to destroy you. It's what it's made to do. It's like a crouching cyber-toothed tiger trying to devour you, right? That's the picture that God gives us. Sin wants to dominate and destroy you, but you can defeat it. You can defeat it. Uh, you know, I, we live in a time where, where I think in the church, we wanted to make sure we're not legalistic. You know, we're not, you know we, all, we all have faults. We all have flaws. And we've learned to admit that to one another. I think it's healthy. But, you know, let's not also think that we have to stay there in our faults and our flaws. There's actually a path to righteousness. There's an ability to grow in holiness. There's an ability that God gives us through his Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. You're able to do it. And I just wanna encourage you with that. Sometimes sin might feel like this, like this heavy thing crouching over your shoulders. In the name of Jesus, you can be free from that. You just have to really want to do it and work with the Holy Spirit and other believers to do it. Paul, the New Testament writer of so much of the gospel, uh, so much of the New Testament says this, the things that I want to do, I do not do, the right things. But the things I don't wanna do, the wrong things, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? But he doesn't stop there. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is a solution. You can overcome sin. You can overcome and eventually overturn its consequences. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you, but you can resist it. You must resist it. And if you do, the path will be brighter. The way forward will be better. Uh, because as we know, you know, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with challenges. But the good news is that Jesus has given us the power and authority by his Holy Spirit to overcome it. Uh, another version of this scripture says that sin will be a struggle, but sin can be defeated by righteousness. And Jesus is our righteousness. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads. Let's bow your heads and close your eyes. And um, just want to invite you to reflect on this for a couple of moments before we wrap up. God, I thank you for your word. God, your Bible. I, I admit, I've, there's been times in my life where I take it for granted. I don't open it enough. I don't look to your word enough sometimes. Forgive me for that, I pray. And yet in our day and time, Lord, the Bible is seen as uh, ancient myth, as uh, unhelpful or even a hateful book. God, we, we've let society question your truth and your character. And I just pray that we as sons and daughters of God would stand up and say, no, that is not who God is. God is love. God is righteousness, yes. God is holiness. And in fact, God provides the solution to sin and brokenness. He provides the covering to shame. He provides forgiveness of sin. He provides restoration of broken relationships. He provides fullness of identity as men and women in our ex different expressions of that. He provides purpose and calling in life. Lord, help us to remember our origin. And though our origin story has these, these dark chapters of sin and the consequences that we still feel today, thank you that we also know that that is not the end of the story. 
that we are redeemed by Christ's blood on the cross and we are made new by the power of his Holy Spirit and we can live lives that conquer sin, not be enslaved to it the rest of our lives. So Lord, renew in us a, a passion and a desire to do what is right, not so we can look good to the world, but to do what is right, Lord, so that we can live free, so we can live in close communion with you and in, and in love and relationship with others. And Lord, so we can point the way of others who are struggling, that we may point them to the path of life, of wholeness, of restoration. Thank you, God, that sin is real. It explains a lot, but that you did not leave us in that. You rescue us, you restore us, and one day you will reunite us completely with you and sin and death will be forever gone. Lord, help us to remember these things and to walk in these things in the power of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.